Hello, and welcome back again to Maturing the Bride. Thank you for those of you who are writing in. I just got an email from someone who just binged on the first book, <laughs> the seven series. I uh, hope you're not binging, but if you're binging, great. But hopefully you're going through these bit by bit, slowly engulfing it, getting it, and then hopefully turning around and teaching it to others. Today we are still in book number three, which we're calling Cat and Dog Theology, just to give you the big picture of where we're going. We're basically saying, hey, if we're going to be a mature bride, we've got to live like a dog and not like a cat. And so we've got to figure out what it means, the differences between cat and dog theology. Dogs, of course, we've already gone over it, but they see life as a beautifully big stained glass window. And all God wants to do is get behind that stained glass window and shine and radiate his glory out to others. That's how dog sees life. Every tessera of a stained glass window reveals the glory of God. There are different ways those tessera reveal the glory of God. One tessera might be the heavens. As we've already gone over in the very first lecture, the heavens reveal the glory of God. Another tessera is the plant kingdom. All the different beauties of flowers and trees and grass and shrubs, all of those reveal his glory. And then, of course, there's taste. God didn't have everything taste like chicken. <laughs> he could have, <laughs> but he didn't. Why? He said, no, I want you to taste an onion. I want you to taste broccoli. I want you to taste diversity because diversity reveals my glory. And of course, one is the blessings. God wants to bless us. That's another way he reveals his glory. But as we've talked about before, Satan doesn't want people to see any aspect of God's glory. And as I suggested, he has a deck of cards that he's passing out all over the world. He passed them out in the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, the Muslim world. But he says, you know, what do I do with these Christians? How do I keep them from focusing on God's glory? <sighs> oh, how? How can I keep those Christians from focusing on God's glory? Ugh. They'll never go for straight Satan worship. False religions? False religions? No. No, they'll see right through that one. Now, which card shall I create for them? I know. Yes, I'll switch their focus to something safe, something close to God's heart. <laughs> but take the focus off of his glory. <laughs> I'll make them think it's all about them. Yes, it's all about them. <laughs> And so this is what Satan tries to do. He gets us to think that it's all about us. God did everything for us. This is Satan's strategy. This is his use of cat theology. This is how he uses cat theology, is to get us in the church to think it's all about us. So there are four ways that I want to suggest that Satan gets us to think 
it's all about us. Four ways we're going to look at in this lecture. This is the, the main thesis of this lecture. Number one is what is called liberal humanism. I did not make up that term. That term came from Deverne Frompke, uh, who had a huge impact on my life, but he calls it liberal humanism and evangelical humanism. Those are his two terms. We go from there on to what's called progressive Christianity, and then from there it goes on to critical race theory. Four ways that Satan gets us to think this is good. This is the best thing that's going to help out humanity. Because humanism has a basic definition. Humanism is defined as any system or way of thought or action concerned with the interest and ideals of people. Two key words. Concerned with people. In other words, men and women, it's all about me, baby. Humanism says it's all about you. You want to cheat on your spouse? As long as it makes you happy. You want to cheat on your taxes? As long as it makes you happy. You want to do drugs? As long as it makes you happy. You are the primary concern. Your happiness is what we are primarily concerned about. So it's all about me. Me, 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 me. But we Christians say, no, no, no. It's not about us. We're supposed to pick up our cross and follow him daily. Yes, that's true. But without realizing it, I want to challenge you. Humanism has silently crept into our churches, creating two types of humanism. We just talked about them, liberal and evangelical. Let's look at the first one, liberal humanism. Men and women, I'm suggesting that Satan has a deck of cards, and, and one of the cards that he pulls out for liberal humanism goes like this. Hmm, now, which card should I pull out for them? I know. <laughs> Do you want more things? I'll get them to want more things. Yes, materialism. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> and so we begin to change our music a little bit. We have a song that says, You, Jesus, it's all about you. But here's how many Christians are singing the song. It's all about things, things, it's all about things. I love the gifts more than the giver, Lord. Please don't take it all that hard. Send prosperity my way, dear Lord, and then I'll serve and worship you. Note the words in there. Send prosperity my way, dear Lord, and then I'll serve and worship you. Then I'll serve and worship you. Jesus, if you just give me these things, if you give me that second house, if you give us that new big home, if you give us all the boat, the car, the new Lexus, Lord, if you just qualify us for that, Lord, I will so worship you. I will so praise you if you give me those things. Liberal Christian humanism says the chief end of Christianity is the happiness of man while he is alive. In other words, Christianity is here to make people happy. It's here to make you happy. That's what Christianity is here for. That's why Jesus died for you. He died to give you the good life. 
And so we see it in health and wealth theology in our world today. God wants you rich. Name it and claim it. God is here to serve you. And so I went to a sermon once in one of these churches that said these words. No, you don't live in a gated community. Yet, in other words, have faith, trust in God, and you'll get into a gated community. No, you don't own that Lexus. Yet, trust God. He wants to give it to you. No, you don't own that second house on the lake. Yet, what are they saying? It's all about you being happy. Hey, listen, they'll say, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Trust God to sell some of that cattle just for you. He died for you. Certainly, he'll give you all these things. And so keep trusting God. Health and wealth theology also has the wealth part. God wants you healthy and rich. He wants you healthy. He wants you to live into your 90s. And if you died, if you didn't live long enough, you didn't have enough faith. And it becomes on us, the burden, the onus, it's our lack of faith that causes this. And as a result, we didn't have enough faith. Deverne Fromke in his excellent book, Under Full Stature, says it this way. Today we are reaping a harvest of man-centered conversions because we are more concerned for man than for God. We are more interested in God serving man than man serving God. Look at those last words. We are more interested in God serving man than in man serving God. That's the epitome of cat theology. You pet me, you feed me, you shock to me, love me. You must be God. You pet me, you feed me, you shock to me, love me. I must be God. I am God. God is here to serve me. We're more interested in God serving us than in us serving God. Listen, as evangelicals, we say, no, this health and wealth theology, that's wrong. That's really out to lunch. But without realizing it, the evangelical church has also been influenced by humanism as well. It has slowly crept into our evangelical churches as well. It's called evangelical humanism. And Satan has a specific card for that one as well. It goes like this. Don't forget the lost. It's about the lost, you see. They're going to hell. Focus on the lost. <laughs> As evangelicals, Satan gets us to focus on the lost. Everything is about saving people from hell. Make sure they don't go to hell. Let's focus on the lost. And so evangelical humanism says it this way. It says the exact same thing as the liberal humanism, because it's still all about people. It just puts a different twist on the end. Here's what evangelical humanism says. The chief end of Christianity is the happiness of man. That's the same part. But then it throws in this new little phrase, after he dies. After he dies, yeah, it's still about people. Don't let people go to hell. Do everything in your power to keep people from going to hell. That's what evangelical Christianity is all about. Everything revolves around saving people from hell. We motivate people into missions through guilt. And we changed the song as well. We used to say, Jesus, it's all about you. But deep down inside, many Christians are singing these words. Them, it's all about them. Them, it's all about them. They are sinful, lost, and going to hell. We've got to save them now, dear Lord. And once they know they're going to heaven, God, 
they can start to seek your face. Save them, Jesus. It's all about them. Men and women having been in missions for 40 some years and been involved with many churches, I see this all the time. Evangelical humanism still falls short. Listen, when I was at college, at university, when I graduated, one of my friends went to, to seminary. And as he went to seminary, he focused so much on preparing to minister to people and, uh, and doing that and studying and working hard and diligently reaching out in his local area. After four years, his wife left him a note that said, I want a divorce. If this is what it means to be a pastor's wife, I want nothing to do with it. And as a result, they divorced. Why? He was so focused on preparing to save the lost and minister to people, he neglected his marriage. You see it, same thing in pastors. They're out there saving people for Jesus. They're doing so many good things, but they neglect their wife. They neglect their children, and they too can end up in divorce. And I've seen it in missionaries. Usually it's the man who's so focused on targeting the Muslim people, slogging hours and, and getting to know Muslims, going to coffee shops, spending time with them. They neglect their wife. They neglect their spouse. Usually on the second furlough after eight years, the wife throws her hands up and just says, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I want a divorce. It was once reported that a child once said, I wish I'd been born a Muslim. My father would have spent more time with me. What a heartache. We forgot it was about the glory of God. We focus so much on the lost world, we have deified humanity. We've taken the lost world, we've put it on the throne, we've taken God off the throne, and we put the lost world on the throne, and we bow before the lost world, doing everything we can to save the lost. Listen, when I was in college, right after college, I left and went straight to Libya. I began to work in a small little town called Tobruk, and I worked there for a year trying to reach out to Muslims. Uh, and when I was there, it was roughly one missionary for every one million Muslims. The odds were so great, I decided I'm going to go back to the United States and mobilize people. So I came back and I helped a man by the name of Greg Livingstone start up a mission agency called Frontiers that is still going today. And so I got on the road mobilizing people. And this is my first display ever. I made this first display and, and basically started talking and sharing with people about going to the Muslim world. I did that for decades. But in about the 18th year, my lovely wife, that beautiful woman there in the pink, uh, the Southern Belle, uh, said to me, she, she had the audacity, the audacity to take me out to dinner at a Mexican restaurant. I still remember the restaurant uh, right above 60 on Allman School Road in Mesa, Arizona. And, uh, and she said these words to me. She said, Bob, you're no fun to live with anymore. I said, fun, fun. We've got a billion Muslims going to hell and you're worried about having fun. I think you've got the wrong priorities. <laughs> Little did I know she was so right. Yes, I would be holding my children and taking care of them when I came home, but I was patting them on my back. I was thinking about the next meeting and I wasn't loving my children. I wasn't loving my wife. I was thinking about all the meetings that had to be taken to reach Muslims. Men and women, I was on a rescue mission. I was never on a treasure hunt for Jesus himself. And I got caught up in evangelical humanism. And my wife 
had to wake me up to it. Neither of us knew the terms, but she knew something was wrong. And through her words, I began a journey that led me to where I am today, knowing it's about the glory of God. Men and women, that was so freeing. When I realized it wasn't about the lost world, when I realized it was about his glory, it changed everything in my Christianity. That's the message I'm trying to get out to so many people. Two types of humanism inside the church, liberal humanism and evangelical humanism. But Satan isn't done there. We've got the two humanisms, liberal and evangelical. He's got a third strategy, and that is called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. Progressive, the word progressive itself means a movement towards a goal or a further or higher stage. Continuous improvement. In other words, I'm continuously improving, which I applaud. I'm always upgrading in my theology. If you would have said, do you agree with what I taught 30 years ago? I'd say, well, some of it, but not all of it. I've learned so much more. I'm continually upgrading and improving. But the way they want to upgrade and improve is a little bit different. As Christians, we should always be improving, yes. Uh, but they'll say things like, well, we now have greater insights than the original disciples had. In other words, the Word of God is not inspired. We now have modern science. We now have modern thinking. And as a result, we know better than what the disciples knew. So progressive Christianity would be saying this. The number one goal is to find the sacred and oneness and unity to all life. Let me repeat that. Find the sacred and oneness and unity to all of life. Sounds kind of good. It's not bad, I guess. But then you've got to look at the details. Number two, Jesus is one of many ways to find this goal. We need to draw from diverse sources of wisdom. So they're saying, look, Jesus isn't the only way. He's just one of what we need to look to Buddha, confusion. We need to look to all the Hinduism, all the other elements and try to gain wisdom from them. Number three, seek community that includes all people. Okay, what do they mean by all people? Let's go over their list. Conventional Christians, that would be us, of course. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, agnostics, oh, agnostics. How do you get conventional wisdom from agnostics? Don't call it, understand that one. Oh, women and men. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those of different sexual orientation and gender identities. And finally, those of all classes and abilities. So whether you're an upper class or lower class, everybody has an equal say, which sounds good. But some of those, hmm, you know, you wonder, what are they thinking here? Number four, know that the way we behave toward one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. Hmm, okay. Number five, find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Oh, hidden in there is the idea there are no absolute truths and keep on questioning, keep on asking tough questions. And number six, strive for peace and justice among all people. Well, that sounds good. Strive to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. Now it's moved from people to the earth. Number eight, commit to a path of lifelong learning and selfless love. So much of that sounds good. There's some red flags on others, but it sounds good because it has as a basis to some degree Christianity. But you need to look at their denials. What are they denying? They've got quite a few denials. Here's their biggest denial. 
Often progressive Christians will refer to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as horrific or unnecessary. The idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his son is perceived to be an indictment on God's character, turning him into a divine abuser. This is sometimes referred to as cosmic child abuse. So they're saying that God would choose to kill his own son on our behalf, cosmic child abuse. We would, I would never kill my son. Why would God kill his son? No, he must not be doing, that must not be right. Jesus didn't die for your sins or for my sins. He was just a good man. Number two, in the progressive church, the Bible is viewed more like an ancient spiritual travel journal than the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. So they're beginning to erode the foundation of the scriptures. Number three, the doctrine of original sin is soundly rejected in progressive Christianity with the idea of original blessing put in its place. Progressive Christians don't typically deny that sin exists or that is a bad thing, but they often deny the idea that we have some sort of a sin nature that was passed down to us from Adam and Eve. So there's no sin nature. There's no original sin. There's nothing that we really need to worry about. We just need to make people better. And what makes people worse is their environment. And sometimes that's the law. And therefore, the problem is the government, not human nature. They downplay, number one, that Jesus is God, the physical resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, and the Trinity. So some of the very foundational things that we have in our Christianity, they say, no, no, no. Don't focus on that. It's not that important. They're pursuing a better Christianity. In their terms, a better Christianity. So we've got, number one, liberal humanism. It goes from there to evangelical humanism. From there, it progresses to progressive Christianity. And now we get to the fourth and final way that Satan uses catheology as it evolves, and that is the critical race theory, or CRT. Critical race theory, CRT, is defined as, this is from Britannica, critical race theory is an intellectual movement and a loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed, culturally invented category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color. Critical race theorists hold that the law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. So truth, right and wrong, doesn't exist. Basically what they're saying is what exists is the oppressed and the oppressors. And the oppressors are wrong, and we need to lift up and elevate the oppressed. Why? It's still about people. It's not about God. It's not about truth. It's about people, and we need to help those that are oppressed. So you'll have huge rallies with people holding signs, Black Lives Matters, end white supremacy now, on and on it goes. They used to claim Martin Luther as their founder, but they don't do that anymore. Why? Martin Luther said these words. I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Men and women, they're not worried about content and character. 
Critical race theory is all worried about the oppressed and the oppressor. And they put people in groups. And you can't get out of that group. No matter what you do, you're still in that group. So CRT, it's not focused on character. No, 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 no. They're focused on skin color and they're focused on sexual orientation. And they'll say there are different groups of people. Everybody's going to be put in a box. The biggest one are the oppressors. The smallest one are the oppressed. And so you've got the oppressors and the oppressed. So who are the oppressors? Well, the worst oppressors are white males. That would be me. I'm a white male. And so I would be the worst one. And next would be a white female because she's white. And that's called white supremacy. You, you've got so much supremacy in there that that's, you, you just... They're terrible oppressors. And then a black male would be next, and then a black female would be next. And then after that becomes gay men, and then gay women. And then uh, those who have chosen another sexual identity, those who are gender fluid, whatever, males, and then gender fluid females, transgender individuals. And so what they say, this is the order that it goes. And what they want to say is the more oppressed you are, you should be heard the most. The more oppressed, you should be heard more. And so in other words, what they're saying is the people that should have the loudest voice in our society today are female transgenders. Those who are female, male, however you want to call them, they're a female that have chosen to be a male, they should have the loudest voice out of everybody. And then you have the males who are choosing to be females. They should have the next voice of how should govern and rule our country, our policies, our society, our culture. And then, of course, the uh, gay couples and the females, and then the gay couples of the males, and then black women, and then white women. But those with the least voices would be white women and white men. And white men should have no say whatsoever, because they say, oh, they've had so much say already. And here's the saddest thing. Men and women, whoever shouts the loudest and the longest is setting the agenda. Those who are shouting the loudest and the longest are the ones setting the agenda. Why? Because those people in critical race theory, they'll say, hey, shame on you if you don't follow us and if you don't follow our agenda. Shame on you if you don't follow the agenda. And if you don't, we are going to cancel you. You will become canceled. We're going to cause you to lose your job, to lose your Facebook, to lose your postings, to lose you shall be canceled. And they do this through their propaganda. Erwin Lutzer was a pastor of Moody Bible Church. He's now retired, but he wrote a book. And in the book, he writes these words. The purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's perception of reality that when confronted with a mountain of evidence, they will not change their minds. When confronted with a mountain of evidence, evidence, men and women, that's called facts. And at the time of the shooting of this, we have a president who says truth over facts. Facts don't mean anything. To them, it's truth, but it's how they define truth. Truth over facts? Men and women, we as a nation have moved from right versus wrong to honor versus shame. We are an honor-shame culture. We are not right or wrong or truth. We have slid so far down. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But now truth doesn't matter. 
Those who have the best say in our culture is not Jesus or the scriptures. It's those who have been oppressed the most. Men and women, we don't have a skin problem. We are all equally created in the image of God. They say we have a skin problem. What I'm saying is we have a sin problem. It's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. That is the foundational problem. Can you see Satan behind all of this? Oh, men and women, can you not see Satan behind it all? Let's look at all four of them. Liberal humanism says it's all about you. Evangelical humanism says it's about them. Progressive Christianity says it's about unity for all of us. And CRT says it's about the oppressed. It's always about people. It's not about God. It's not about his glory. It's about people. This is Satan's use of cat theology and how he's taken the church and turned her focus off of the glory of God onto people so that God and his glory take second place. And we've missed it. Most Christians have missed this because there's a cancer inside our church that we're not aware of. A cancer of cat theology, a cancer of one degree off, call it whatever you want. We've missed the glory of God. Well, that ends our lecture today. I hope it's been helpful for you. Hey, listen, in our next time together, we are going to be talking about how to be disobedient inside the church. How to be disobedient inside the church. You don't want to miss it. Welcome again to Maturing the Bride. Thanks.